so this morning our uh, epistle is in the book of James. Chapter 3 begins at the first verse and goes all the way through verse 12. James writes, Not many of you should become teachers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For all of us make many mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships, though they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species. But no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or a grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. See, restraining the tongue is a difficult endeavor. As fallible humans in a fallen human condition, holding your tongue, restraining yourself from spewing unkind words can often be hard, if not impossible, to do. I often use the illustration of driving in Houston traffic. There's something about driving in Houston traffic that unbridles the human tongue. Have you been there? James gives us some good insight here in this passage on the subject of restraining the unbridled tongue. He puts it in the context of teachers, but if you're not a teacher in the, the academic sense, don't think that his advice doesn't apply to you. Because as Christians, we are all ministers of the faith. We are all proclaimers of the gospel. We are all makers of disciples. So in a very real sense, we are all of us teachers to a certain degree. And because of that, we're responsible for the words that pour from our lips. Let that sink in for just a minute. We're responsible for the stuff that comes out of our mouths. And so James is telling us here, don't be in any rush to become a teacher, my friends. Teaching is really highly responsible work. 
Teachers are held to the strictest standard, standards, and, and, and none of us is perfectly qualified because we're human. We get it wrong nearly every time we open our mouths. If you could find someone, James says, whose speech is perfectly true, you'd have a perfect person in perfect control of life. That's how integral to who we are our tongues are. And James says, a bit in the mouth of a horse controls the whole horse. Is there anybody you know you'd like to put a bit in their mouth? <laughs> a small rudder, James says, on a huge ship in the hands of a skilled captain sets a course in the face of the strongest winds. A word out of your mouth may seem to be of no account, James says, but it can accomplish nearly anything or it can destroy everything. So there's two sides to the words that pour out of our mouth. They can be uplifting or they can be devastating. James says it only takes a small spark to set off a forest fire. A careless or wrongly placed word out of your mouth can do the very same thing. By our speech, James writes, we can ruin the world, turn harmony to chaos, throw mud on a reputation, send the whole world up in smoke, and go up in smoke with it. Smoke right from the pit of hell, James says. This is a scary thing. He, he, he writes, you can tame a wild beast, you can tame a tiger, but you can't tame a tongue tame a tongue it's never been done you can't tame a tongue the tongue runs wild it's a wanton killer with our tongues we bless God our father and with the same tongues we curse the very men and women he made in his image that's an interesting thing cursings and blessings coming out of the same mouth and yet we do it and then finally James says friends this can't go on it's not natural. See, a spring doesn't gush forth fresh water and bad water, brackish water, salt water. You can't do both. A apple trees don't bear strawberries. Raspberry bushes don't bear apples. You can't dip a cup into a polluted mud hole and get a cup of clear, cool water. That's what James is trying to make the point is that we have to be consistent concerning the words that come out of our mouths. We can't come to church on Sunday and sing beautiful, uplifting hymns and recite these wonderful, powerful prayers and creeds and read scripture, letting all these beautiful words flow from our mouths and then turn around and let unkind, hateful words spew from our lips the rest of the week. And James isn't pointing any fingers here. He's just saying, be conscious of what's coming out of your mouth, even in the privacy of your own automobile, if you're just saying it into the rearview mirror. God hears. We have to bridle that horse. We have to control that tongue, lest we be seen as hypocrites 
into the fallen and broken world and all the people in it who are looking to us for something different. Our words can affirm and uplift and give life or they can steal, they can kill, and they can destroy. So there are two illustrations of this that I want to share with you. One of them some of you may have heard, but it bears repeating because it fits so perfectly with what James is telling us today. You've heard me use, some of you, I guess, the story of Margaret. Do you remember Margaret? Margaret was a lady who was getting on in years, and she lived in a retirement home. And all her life, Margaret suffered from low self-esteem, always thinking that she was never good enough, she was never smart enough, because as a child, the terrible power of unbridled tongues had attacked her unmercifully. You remember Margaret. Margaret was a child. She went to school in a one-room schoolhouse out in the country. And she was an awkward child who didn't seem to fit in with the other kids. And when she was in her fifth year of school, they, the school hired a new teacher, and for whatever reason, she immediately disliked Margaret. Maybe it was her awkwardness. Maybe it was because the teacher was young and inexperienced and just felt like she needed to join in with the way everyone else was treating Margaret. So after a particularly trying day at school, the teacher was angry and frustrated with her class and especially at Margaret. And she told each of the 25 students when Margaret was being particularly difficult, she told each of those students in that small school to go up and write a reason they didn't like Margaret on the chalkboard. Yes, this actually happened. And then she instructed the students to turn and face the class and read what they had written. And so one by one they wrote and they spoke, Margaret is ugly, Margaret is stupid, Margaret is strange, Margaret is fat, Margaret is fill in the blank. And so Margaret, now in her declining years, took that cruel experience with her for the rest of her life. And so now living in this nursing home, home she, she reached out to a local pastor who visits the home on occasion and, and she shared with him over a cup of coffee the things that took place in that one room schoolhouse on that day so long ago. And she tells the pastor, I can recall each one, their face and what they wrote and what they said about me. It has stayed with me all of my life. The pastor thought for a moment, struggling to find words that would have any significance or meaning. The pastor said, Margaret, I think there's one one person that was in that classroom that day that you left out. Margaret said, no, that's not possible. I've replayed it in my head so many times. I'm sure they're all accounted for. They, the mean things they wrote and said, each and every one, and Margaret closed her eyes and remembered their faces once again. 
pastor broke into her silence and said, no, Margaret, there is one. One at the back of the class, Margaret, don't you see him? Do you see him? He's getting up from his chair and he's walking to the front of the class. Do you see him, Margaret? Now he's taking the chalk from the teacher and he's picking up the eraser from the chalkboard's ledge. Can you see him, Margaret? He's erasing all of those mean things from the board and he's writing new things in their place. And now he's reciting those things he has written and he is calling them into being and he is making them true. Can't you just see him, Margaret? Can't you hear his words? He's writing and he's speaking and he's saying Margaret is beautiful. Margaret is kind. Margaret is wonderful. Margaret is love. Do you see him, Margaret? It's Jesus. Yes, Margaret smiled. I see him. And he's the only one who knows who I really am. See, words can be destructive. Words can be uplifting. We have the ability to bridle an unbridled tongue, and sometimes words, well, they aren't really words at all. Last week on Wednesday, I was making my rounds at Houston Methodist Hospital down in the medical center. And I went into a patient's room in the medical ICU unit And there was a patient lying in the bed and his, who I came to found out was his daughter and a good friend of the family were standing at his bedside. And I began to address the daughter and the friend because at first glance, the patient seemed to be unresponsive. And so the two women were, were glad to see me as I walked in. I guess it was the caller. I guess they were people of faith. And I said good morning to them. And it occurred to me, maybe I should acknowledge that there's a patient in the room. And so I turned to the patient and I said good morning. And the daughter said that her father was indeed a man of faith. And she said to him, isn't that right, Dad? And then the patient's eyes blinked upward. And the daughter explained that when he raised his eyes in that manner, it meant he was in agreement. And so I asked if they would like to pray together. And once again, the patient raised his eyes. And so we prayed calmly and softly. We held hands around the bed. And when the prayer concluded with the word amen, the patient raised his eyes in agreement. 
That's the first time I've ever seen anyone say amen with their eyes. It was truly a holy and powerful moment, and it made me realize that I need to take the time to notice the many different ways that the Spirit finds to shine out from the cracks of even the most broken vessel. And I have to tell you that no amen shouted from the top of my lungs could ever speak louder than the expression of agreement, the amen that came from this patient's eyes. He was saying amen. He was saying the word. But that's when I realized the power of the unbridled tongue. See, words have power even when they're unspoken words. That's why the word of God is so powerful. That's why everything that's contained in the word is living. It, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't depend on even our ability to read. It just depends on our ability to believe, here, not so much here, that this is the word, <clears throat> that Jesus is the word, the living word. And so words can be life-giving or they can steal a person's life away. We can bridle the unbridled tongue. We can choose to speak life into people. And my prayer is that we all find the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in each of us as a follower of Jesus Christ to speak words of life even if we don't use words. I offer this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit this morning.